uh, we are still in the book of 1 Corinthians, and we're in a, one of my favorite sections uh, in 1 Corinthians 13. Now, I'm going to try every week to catch you up briefly on what we've covered the weeks before, because there's so much in, in these verses. Uh, but two weeks ago, we began looking at the biblical definition of love, you know, as described by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, which is also the verses everybody thinks are just about weddings, when in all honesty, they have nothing to do with weddings, <laughs> but that's just kind of where they've fallen. So let's look at this real quick, and I'll catch you up, and then we'll start in today's message. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 4 says, Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Okay, now, love in verses 4 through 8a is the Greek word agape, and that word means uh, sacrificial and unconditional love. Uh, and biblically, it refers to a love that, that God is, that God shows, and that God gives. That's agape love. Now, agape is the love that is always present in the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is always present in all believers. So we have the ability to show that kind of love to other people because it's the agape love that enables believers to be, you know, obedient and to be productive. So Paul used agape in Galatians chapter 5, 22, when he was describing the fruit of the Spirit. If you look at Galatians 5, 22 and 23, it says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such, thing, such things there is no law. Now, we also discussed that love is what? Your love is an action. There you go. I had to feed you a little more on that. Okay. Love is an action. And every action that love produces is designed to glorify God. Okay. That's really important. Now, in verse 4, Paul started describing the actions that are kind of associated with agape love, which brings us to where we are. So, um, we already looked at the beginning of verse 4 where it says love is patient and love is kind. And I'll go through this quickly, as quickly as possible anyway. Uh, the Greek word for patient is, anybody remember it? Just check it. This is a tough one. It's makrothromeo, and it means to delay. And what Paul was saying is that love delays the natural reaction to anger and to frustration. Then we looked at the word kind, which is the Greek word kresteomai, and it means to act with kindness and mercy. Uh, and we also just just started to touch on love does not brag. But we're going to look closer on that, on that this week, so we're going to back up a little bit and take a look at that. So I titled today's message, Loving Humility, because love and humility go hand in hand. I mean, you just can't separate the two spiritually. Uh, the love of Jesus that he poured out on the cross for all humanity was displayed in his humility. And we'll look at that as we go throughout the rest of this message. But that's as fast as I can catch you up, okay? Everybody get that? Would you tell me if you didn't? Probably not. Okay. I think you would. Okay, so love does not brag and is not arrogant. Now... Bragging and arrogance is kind of funny because they're very similar but still different. They're similar in the attitude, but, but one is external and one is internal. Okay, First, bragging is simply a byproduct of worldly pride, and bragging is an external sin that comes from pride. It's external. Okay, The word brag is from the Greek word peripuruamai, and it means uh, public boasting. Public boasting, that's what makes it external. Uh, and bragging about our gifts in my opinion, is insulting and irreverent to God. Okay, and that's why, that's why Paul put this in here. The Corinthians, remember, they wanted attention above all else. They wanted to be respected. They wanted to be looked up to. They wanted to be admired. So if they had a gift, they might have embellished a little bit how good they were at it, right? And probably argued amongst themselves over whose gift was the best, so they were probably all bragging on each other. And Paul wanted to know, listen, that is, that is insulting and it's irreverent toward God. Because by bragging, we're claiming that our gifts and our abilities are of our own design. They're of our own design. 
And only a complete fool or someone who knows nothing about God would think that, that all their gifts and all their abilities are something that they just designed themselves. Have you ever noticed when somebody's really bragging on themselves, I mean, it's just natural to feel awkward. You ever notice that? It's like really awkward when you're, I'll never forget, I shouldn't tell you this, I'm going to. Hopefully this person doesn't come today. But uh, I, was, uh, I was out driving around with this guy, um, he's a friend of mine, and he's very short. That'll make sense later, okay? But, um, and he had little man syndrome like no one I've ever met. I mean, big time little man syndrome. And so we pull up to the stoplight and we're talking about something totally different than what he was about to bring up. And he says, did you see that? And I go, what? That. I go, what? He said, those girls in the car beside us. I'm like, I'm 44. At the time, I was 44. I'm like, I, no, I didn't. And he goes, he was still checking me out. <laughs> and I so bad wanted to say, did you get a booster seat? How did they see you? But, no, I shouldn't say. But, you know, that's, it's awkward. I mean, in and of ourselves, I mean, it's just awkward when that happens. And, and it's because your nature, our very nature teaches us that bragging just isn't right. Now, I don't know about you, but it's hard for me to even look people in the eye when they're bragging on themselves. You know what I mean? It's just, it's just weird, right? Because all I can think about is how ignorant it is to try to lay claim on God's handiwork as your own. I just, I just can't understand that. I can't even look them in the eye, right? But remember, uh, remember what I said last week about being eaten by worms? Still, still a thing. I just want you to know that wasn't something I just said for the sermon. That's legit. I am, I, I am so paranoid about trying to do anything that could take credit away from God and sometimes I wish other people would be also. But there's one thing I've learned in over 30 years of working with people in ministry and coaching and all the other things. There's one thing that's taught me and that is deep down the people who are bragging probably don't really believe what they're bragging about either. They probably don't. Generally, people who brag are trying to compensate for their insecurities. They're trying to get praise because they don't feel like they get praise. They're trying to force their worthiness because they don't feel uh, like they're worthy. So usually they don't even believe it. Because those who actually believe their own hype, those who actually believe their own boasting fall into a total different category, okay? Which takes us to the next thing Paul talks about. Love is not arrogant. Okay, so the second word that, you know, the, the, that he described is arrogant, and it comes from the Greek word fusio. Okay, fusio simply means to make proud to make proud and it describes the internal this is the internal part the internal uh, sin of pride see here's the thing you have to remember pride is a cancer have you ever noticed that we are raised in to be proud you ever notice that take some pride be proud and the bible's going pride is not good it's a cancer and it it, it just destroys people if you look at proverbs 16 8 it said pride goes before what destruction and a haughty spirit or conceited spirit uh, before stumbling. So when somebody becomes arrogant, they fall into what I think is the worst kind of self-deception. Okay? And that self-deception is called denial. Okay? Denial just means refusal to accept the truth. For example, I am in denial that pizza is bad for me. And, and I plan to remain there. I, denial is warm and fuzzy for me there. Okay? I choose not to listen to the truth about that because I love pizza, right? Denial just means believing something that isn't true, accepting something that isn't true, right? And denial usually happens when believers forget the source of their spiritual gifts, the source of their talents, the source of their ability. 
Because one thing we have to remember is every ability, every talent, every possession, every gift, even every breath that we take is on loan from God. We have to remember that it's on loan from God. Look at James 1.17. It says, Every good thing uh, and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. See, God gives us gifts so that we can glorify Him and draw people to Him. The gifts we have are not about us. As soon as those gifts become about you and bringing credit and glory to you, then God is no longer in them. Because if people are looking at you and giving you the admiration, they're not looking at God. Right? So those gifts are given to us for that reason. And it, it's really, it's a struggle for me. Because, you know, the more we deny God's given us the abilities, the worse and less effective we become in personal ministry. But the more that we honor God with our gifts, He starts to empower us and enable us. When we do, uh, when we exercise our gifts, rather, you know, with the mindset of glorifying God, He pushes us along that path of success every time. Right? I've seen it so many times. The most humble people seem to accomplish the most for God. And I think of so many people uh, that are so humble that work behind the scenes, and in our own church, Rex Allen, I think about him all the time. You know, because the man demands no glory. He doesn't want any attention, any anything for that, but he will... I mean, serve God with a passion that's unbelievable. And I think about him all the time because people look to the, you know, the pastors and the people who are uh, in music, uh, and I think, you know, it's ironic. We look to those people, but the people, the movers and the shakers, sometimes we don't see them because Rex has brought so much to our, to our congregation through his love and through his dedication. And that's the humility. Uh, when you're humble like that, God just blesses you, right? And he just moves you to success. He empowers you to succeed. He gives you the ability uh, to trust Him and to succeed. But also, when believers forget the origin and purpose of their abilities, watch out, because it's a warning sign. Okay, just be careful when that starts to happen, because it, it is a warning sign, because the next step, when you forget that everything good in your life is from God, the next step is alienating God. And when we alienate God, we alienate His guidance. Okay? And I know it seems strange that a believer could get to that point, but I've met them. I've counseled them. Where they've gotten to a point, and sometimes, you know, sometimes it happens because they've been lifted up too much. You know, that's why I always tell you guys, you know, I'm no more important than you. No one here is any more important than anybody else. Lifting people up is what makes them get filled with pride. There's an old saying, if we're in the same foxhole, don't lift me up, because I'll be the first one to get shot. It's kind of the same thing. When you lift somebody up, that pride can actually destroy them. And the next thing you know... You feel so self-confident that you stop listening to God's direction. That's how dangerous arrogance is. Look at Proverbs 14, 12. It says, there, are way, there is a way which seems right to a man, meaning to humanity, but its end is the way of what? Death or separation is what that means in the Greek. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed or beware that he does not what? Fall. You know, the old saying is, the person, when they feel like they're at their highest point, is ready for their farthest drop. That is so true. Because that's always when it happens, when you just lose track of who gave you those blessings. Now, have you ever, have you ever wanted something so bad that you ignore what God tells you to do? Anybody ever done that? I have. You just ignore what God tells you to do. And if you've done that, you understand what happens when you get to that point. But the decisions you make usually end up really, really messy. 
Well, that, you start heading down that road when arrogance starts to set in in your life. So be cautious of that. So if we're going to, you know, successfully function as a church body, we have to realize something. Boasting and arrogance, they just don't have any place in a believer's life. There's no place for that in a church and in a believer's life because all they bring is dissension. It brings dissension. Trust me, and dissension not only separates people from God, but it separates people from each other. See, and, and arrogance basically says to God and everyone else, you need me. You can't do this without me. When in reality, if you won't do it, God will pick someone who will. You know, that's something we always have to remember. We are replaceable. Every one of us are replaceable. God's giving us an opportunity out of His grace and love to let us be blessed. Right? But if we choose not to, it's not like God's going to go, now what? You know, Michelle will not do what I tell her to do. We are done. You know what? Christianity stops here until that girl gets her head straight. No. That's not what he does. He says, okay, it could have been a blessing, Michelle. Sorry, you sat in front of me. Right? Could have been a blessing, Michelle, but no. Now I'm going to find someone else. That's what we have to remember. Arrogance says, you can't do this without me. But the one who loves without arrogance says, I can do nothing apart from God, but with his guidance, I can do all things. Look at John 15, 5. I love when Jesus uses this analogy. He says, I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can what? You can do nothing. Right? Philippians 4, 13. Everybody should know this one. I can do all things through him who strengthens me, or through Christ who strengthens me. So it's really, really important that, you know, arrogance, arrogance and bragging just have no business in the body of believers. And Paul wanted it out of Corinth, so he went straight at it. Okay? The next thing he says, and this could, I'm going to try to get through this one. Uh, but the next thing he says is that love does not act unbecomingly. Let's read this again, 1 Corinthians 13, 5. Uh, it does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, is not provoked, is not taken into account a wrong suffered. Ooh, I can't wait to preach on that. Ooh, I can't wait to preach on that. Anyway, so one of the hardest things to teach people or to describe to people uh, about love is, is, you know, how it says not to act unbecomingly. That's hard to describe to people what that means when it says love does not act unbecomingly. And I think too often we just oversimplify what that means, what it means to live in a way that's not unbecoming of, okay? Because it's more than just, you know, showing up to church, giving your offering, and being nice to people. Usually if we think that we, you know, we're not, we're not murderers, we're not thieves, we don't, you know, that we're not hacking people's bank accounts, then we're not acting unbecoming of. But it's, it's a little deeper than that. I mean, don't take me wrong, all those things are good. It's good, you know, it's good to go to church and to be, you know, give your offering and to be nice to people. That's all good. Not, not this and that. But in order to not act becomingly, you first have to understand what unbecomingly, unbecomingly means. Uh, and the Greek word for act unbecomingly, because they're together, is asking moneo. And what that means is to, be, is to behave indecently or to behave disgracefully. Now that opens a whole floodgate of kind of different kind of actions and attitudes, okay? A ton of them. Um, just to kind of move on a little further, disgraceful is defined as shameful, dishonorable, or disreputable. We're trying to narrow this down, Okay. And as I said last week, it's not how you treat your friends and your family that defines how loving you are. And I think a lot of times we feel like if we're good to the people who are good to us or we're good to the people close to us, then we're good people. But that's completely off the mark. I mean, completely off the mark. It's how we treat everyone else that defines how loving we are in God's eyes. Especially those people that we don't like. The people who mistreated us or who have hurt us. Now, let, let's be honest. I don't want anybody getting self-righteous on me. How many people in here struggle when you think of a certain person in your life 
being loving toward them. Does everybody have that person? Be honest, okay? Are they related to you? No, I'm just kidding. They probably are, right? Um, the most skipped text in the world is from your family. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I hope they're not watching. Oh, but anyway, uh, it's tough when it's people you don't like. And I, I remember when I first got saved, I didn't know anything about the Bible. And it didn't make sense to me when they said, listen, you've got to be nice to everybody, even the people you don't like. And I'm going, did you miss the definition of don't like? I don't like them. I don't like them in a house. I don't like them with a mouse, you know. So I don't understand why I got to be nice to them. Jesus explained it in uh, Matthew 5.43. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Because believe it or not, that's how the Jews kind of lived at that time. Verse 44, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you uh, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven for he causes the, his son to rise on the evil and the good and he sends rain on the righteous and unrighteous for if you love those who love you what reward do you have do not even the tax collectors do the same that's a pretty powerful statement you know because think about this uh, he says pray for those who persecute you does anybody else feel like you're a total hypocrite when you pray that prayer? You know, but I, listen, I know God knows my heart. So I, I believe that. I believe God's right. But here's how I do that. I say, God, I'm praying for this person because you told me to. I don't like them. And this is really hard for me. It's hard for me to tell you I want them to be blessed. I'm just saying what you guys are thinking when you do it, okay? And so I literally pray, God, I want what you want for their life. But you're going to have to have the vision for me because I don't have it. But I am praying for them. And does, is that a bad way to pray that way? I don't know. It seems more genuine to me, doesn't it, you? God, you asked me to pray for them. Do I want to? No. But I'm going to because you asked me to. That's kind of how I feel when you get to that. Uh, and it's, it's really tough. You know how it says it rains on the righteous and the unrighteous? That should say it rains every time Chris washes his truck. But anyway, so what he's trying to say here is that real love isn't defined by familiarity loving people you're familiar with real love is defined and i will show it to anybody that's god's love remember jesus died for the people who are driving the spikes through his wrists and through the arches of his feet that's the love of god it you know it literally pains me to see christian people acting like the very world that crucified jesus and when you don't show love that's what you're acting like remember love is the most character defining attribute of god it is the most, I mean, because the Bible tells us God is love. First John 4, 8, God is love. And when believers stop loving, people no longer see God moving in you, right? It's that love that doesn't make sense that makes people see God in you. When someone treats you horribly and you're kind to them, that doesn't make sense to the world. They don't understand that. And they see something more in you than they see in other people. Is it hard? Of course it's hard. You think the devil's going to make that easy? But it shows that we're different. It shows that we're different because when we don't love, people don't see God working in you. And it's kind of sad because I feel like love is kind of dying uh, in, in the body of Christ. And that sounds like a pretty bold statement, but I, I think it's true. Because a lot of people are turning from church. And it's not because God's mean to them. You know what I mean? So it must mean it's us that's being mean to them. It, it drives me, you know, it's sad when the most commonly used term to describe Christians is what? Hypocrites. There it is. The most commonly uh, used term to describe believers is hypocrites. And that's sad. That's, that's so sad. 
Because the word, ap- uh, the word hypocrite means actor. It means actor. And believers shouldn't be pretending to love like God. That should come natural to us. You literally have to fight that off. But unfortunately, believers have earned that reputation fair and square. It's sad, but we have. I mean, too often we say, you know, we say one thing, but our actions, our attitudes say something totally different, completely different. Like, we say we believe in grace and love, yet we pick and choose who we show it to and when we show it. You hear believers throw that term grace around like crazy. You guys know what it means. It's the Greek word charis, unmerited favor. It means showing someone something they don't deserve. Can you see how that would be at the core of love? You're not waiting for someone to deserve love. You're giving them grace. You're showing them love even when they don't deserve it. And you think to yourself, gosh, I don't want to do that. Well, it's a good thing Jesus doesn't have your attitude because none of us deserve his love. You know what I mean? That is just those words we throw around and we don't live it. You know, people come to church expecting to be embraced and too often they're judged and condescended for what they wear. I mean, despite the fact that, you know, your pastor dresses pretty slick. You know, I'm just saying a lot of times people walk in the door wearing jeans and people stare at them. They don't, here's the way I look at it. Wear something and no one will stare at you here. You know, wear nothing. Yeah, we're going to stare. It's weird. I'm just saying. But it shouldn't be about what we wear. But that's the way it's become because we have abandoned love for this, I don't know, this group mentality, this separatist mentality. And it's driving people away from church. See, when believers stop showing love and grace, then division and disunity set in and if you've never been a part of a church where this is set in i'm thankful for you because i have i've been a part of a church before where love starts to grow cold and all of a sudden people start breaking off this group thinks this way this group thinks this way and then it almost becomes warring members inside of one body and the next thing you know it's disunity it just totally ends up where everybody's splitting up and church splits are so ugly and unity is probably the most important ingredient in a successful team a church or a company that's probably why the enemy goes after it so hard he knows if he can get you to stop loving and break up that unity it's going to be a problem see love and unity are inseparable because true unity is a byproduct of love if you love people you want to be around them right i have to think about that for a second back to the family thing we talked about earlier no i'm just kidding no but i mean usually when you love people you want to be around those people right But disunity is a byproduct of someone whose behavior has become unbecoming, okay? And that's what he was leading us to. And and unbecoming behavior pushes people away instead of drawing them in. And this is what was happening in Corinth. They were doing everything they weren't supposed to do. They were acting in every way they weren't supposed to act, and it was destroying that church. It wasn't drawing anybody in. But unbecoming behavior for a believer comes in several forms. I'm only going to mention two for time's sake. I'm just going to mention two. Okay, first, and this probably doesn't happen here, just so you know. Talking behind people's back. I can't imagine that happening here. Right? That and gossiping would be at the top of the list. Would be at the absolute top of the list of acting unbecomingly. Listen, I'm people judge everyone that walks through the door, it seems like Christianity has become so judgmental, but they don't have a problem with people who gossip. You never hear people saying, I wonder if that lady's who she says she is because she gossips. Nobody says that. They judge everything else. And here's the thing. I have witnessed more damage being done by people talking behind each other's back and gossiping about each other than anything else. Have you ever had somebody talk behind your back? Raise your hand if that's happened to you. You always find out or you wouldn't be raising your hand. 
People go, if it's behind their back, that's being a good Christian. They don't know. No. They're going to find out. They're going to find out. And gossiping, listen, gossiping, in my opinion, uh, and in God's opinion, it's one of the seven things he hated most, but in my opinion, is the greatest poison that can enter a church. Uh, being judgmental and, and making people earn your love and kindness, that, you know, that would also qualify. But those are the two I can think of that we can quickly grasp onto. Um, but attitudes and actions like these cause disunity and separation, and it can and will kill a church. It will kill a church. The Bible is very clear about the, you know, the success of those who, whose lives display God's love. Look at this, 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 10. It says, the one who loves his brother abides in the light. Now that's a capital L. Who are we talking about? Jesus. That's the Sunday school answer. You guys also jumped on that one. Uh, his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. See, Jesus' earthly ministry was marked by, by mercy, by grace, and by love. That's just how it was marked. Uh, when people thought of him, they brought up the people that he healed or, you know, the feeding the 5,000. They thought of those miracles because his, his ministry was marked by love. So if you want to ensure that you're not acting unbecomingly, follow his example. It's that simple. Follow his example. Do what Jesus did. Jesus didn't require people to earn his love. And he didn't just offer his love to friends. And that's really, really important. He freely gave his love to anyone who would receive it, and he still does today. So we should also. Now, I'm, I'm going to take a shot at trying to get this last one in it says love does not seek its own Ooh, i don't know if we'll get through this or not this is a big one first corinthians 13 5 love does not act unbecomingly it does not seek its own is not provoked does not take into account a wrong suffered did i mention i can't wait to preach that yeah i'm excited about that one. but we live in a world that pushes the theory we should only look out for number one wouldn't you agree we should look out for number one uh, and in reality, that's the polar opposite of everything Jesus taught and modeled before us. Listen to this in Philippians 2. This is Paul describing Jesus' attitude. He said, Having this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, though, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, and that means exploited, uh, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's the humble nature, the non-self-seeking nature of Jesus. There is no room for self-seeking, self-righteous, or unloving attitudes in the body of Christ. It just shouldn't be there. You know, had Jesus been self-seeking, think about this, we would have had no hope. Because he would have said, wait, 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 you, you're, you're going to do what? You're going to arrest me? I didn't do nothing. Why are you arresting me? What, you're going to beat me? Until I'm unrecognizable, then you're going to kill me. I'll pass. Hard pass on that one. Imagine if Jesus was thinking like that. We would be in so much trouble. That it makes me laugh because that's my guilt trip I use with people when they when they say that you know I, where were you at church? Well, I had this and this and this, and I go, oh no big deal. He just died for you, you know. So sorry, it popped into my head. I had to share my dark reasons in my mind. But we would have had no hope. And here's kind of an example. I love the story of Peter. How many people remember the story where Peter tries to defend Jesus in the garden? You guys remember that? One of my favorites. Let's look at this real quick. Matthew 26, 52. It says, Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back to its place, for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you not think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? How then will the Scripture be fulfilled which say it must happen this way? Let me back up. I didn't give you the rest of it. What happened was they came to arrest Jesus, and Peter pulls a sword, and he's a fisherman not a swordsman, he's a fisherman, 
and he cuts off the guard's ear. His name was Malchus. Cut off his ear. And people go, wow, look how trained he was to cut off his ear. I'm like, no, he was trying to split him in half and missed. He's a fisherman. Right? He missed. He's a fisherman. And then Jesus says, put that up. What are you doing? You don't think I can stick up for myself? He said, I'm not doing this for me. Basically is what he was saying. Had Jesus been self-seeking, he could have called down the armies of God. He didn't need Peter and his bad swordsmanship to stick up for him. If he wanted them to stop, he could have called on God, and he would have sent that a legion was 12,000, 12 legions, 144,000 of God's armies could have come down and taken care of business. He's saying, I don't need your protection, okay? I'm willingly doing this, because not because I'm seeking anything for myself, but I'm seeking this for you. The scriptures say this is the only way that redemption can happen, is if I do it this way. So this is how I'm going to do it. Can you imagine if he didn't? Can you imagine if he were self-seeking? Right? We're not supposed to seek our own. But he wanted to show humanity God's love, and the only way he could do that was denying himself. I love this. Romans 5, 6 through 8. It says, for while we were still... And I love this. If you look at this verse, listen to the names we get called in just a couple verses. It says, for, for while we were still what? Helpless. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one would hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man some would even dare to die. That's confusing. That just means somebody might take a bullet for the president, but not for Chris Moses. That's what that means, okay? Um, verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So in one, in what, three verses here, we are called helpless, ungodly sinners. And what he was saying was, even though we were helpless, ungodly sinners, Jesus was not self-seeking, so he still died for us despite us. But when believers love themselves more than they love others, ministry is impossible. If you're self-seeking, ministry is impossible. And that is so evident in the professional athletes today. Have you guys noticed that, I mean, it's unbelievable how athletes love themselves more than they love the team. Have you guys notice that? It drives me crazy. And I, to be honest with you, I don't want my kids looking up professional athletes. I don't want any kid looking up professional athletes until they start acting, I don't know, professional. You know what I mean? It drives me crazy because, listen, they'll refuse to show up to practice or work if they don't get the money they think they're worth. Most of the time, before the other contract they already agreed to hasn't even expired. They just say, I'm not showing up. I'm not even going to show up to work. Meanwhile, their team suffers in their absence. And most of the time, they won't come back until they're paid the most anyone's ever been paid for their position. And that just rubs me the wrong way. We have people starving all over this country and people making $100 million a year to play a game. I know, I sound like an old guy. Listen, I love football, I love watching basketball, but that honks me off. I'm not going to lie. That honks me off. No concern whatsoever for the team. So we wonder why kids in this day and age are all about themselves. This is the mentality that we're seeing in front of us and all around us, right? And it drives me absolutely nuts. Because when any team loses team mentality... If you lose the mentality that we are a team, that's your identity. That's how you succeed. When that sets in, failure is inevitable. I've coached teams for years, you know, pushing three decades now. And the teams that were unified and loved each other may have less talent, but they accomplish more. Right? But the teams that have tons of talent, but no unity, never get anywhere. And I'm going to tell my old man basketball stories, and I'll get out of your way. I used to play men's league basketball until I was 42, which is why I've had so many surgeries. And uh, we played this team full of kids that were in their 20s that played college ball. And I thought, okay, we're going to get smoked. 
because, you know, we'd call for a sub in like three minutes so we wouldn't have a coronary bypass out there on the floor. And so we get out there, and at halftime, we're winning by like 15 points. And all those kids are running over looking at the scorebook to see who has the most points. They're losing. They're looking at the scoreboard. We end up beating them by almost 20, and one of the kids come up and said, how'd you old guys beat us? Because that's so nice to say to people, that's what you want to hear. And I told him, I said, you're way better than us. You're way more talented than us. I said, your problem is there's not enough basketballs on the court. They said, what do you mean? I said, you guys are so worried about yourself. First person to cross half court shoots. That wasn't too hard to guard. They said, if you guys would have played like a team, you'd have run us out of the gym. He goes, hmm, and then ran over the scorebook to the point scored for the game. So I don't know that I made that big of a dent. But listen, the same, things, the same thing happens. Listen, when churches become about individuals separating from each other rather than a group coming together as one, they're going to fail. That's just going to fail. When believers start worrying about themselves more than the plan of God, you're going to fail. There's no room for being self-seeking in Christianity. And the Corinthians had gotten so deep into that that they were suing their parents. Yeah, they were taking brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers to court. Not because they really needed the money, but court to them proved that they were, you know, powerful and had connections. So they were so self-seeking, they were like, sorry, Mom, I'm going to put your wheelchair into the court and sue you so people can see how powerful and influential I am. Paul was saying, you can't have that and have love and have a successful ministry. Uh, and I'll, I'll be honest, to sum this all up, if we want to be, especially in the times we live in, I don't know if you guys realize this, but I, I think we're in one of the most detrimental times in history right now. Things are changing at a pace I can't even describe right now. Things are changing. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed how crazy this world is getting? And the last thing this world needs is Christians to forget the most important ingredient in the, in the plan of God, and that's love. So as we go through the rest of this, and I'm going to stop there, but as we go through the rest of this, these aren't just things that I'm saying for a novelty. These are legitimate I mean, love is the only way we're going to make it. And it's growing cold, people. It's growing cold. And I want it to be reignited here. So we'll, we'll pick up there next week. I'm going to ask if you would please bow your head. This is your first time. We always give an invitation and not ask people to come down front or anything. We just want to pray for you. So if you're not sure uh, where you stand or something's bothering you, I don't need to know what it is. I will pray for you. Just make eye contact with Bless those people. Put your heads right back down. Bless those people. Bless those people. Listen, I'm, I'm praying. And God sees it if I don't. If you're watching or listening online, God knows your heart. Believers, I always pray for us. We have got to get to a point where people see us and think of love instead of think of judgment. We've got to get to a point where people see us and see God, not see self-righteousness. And that's what I'm going to be praying for us. Let's go ahead and pray. God, I thank you so much for your love and your grace. And I thank you that you loved us so much that despite the fact that none of us would ever be good enough, you still gave us the opportunity to your son. I'm so thankful, Jesus, that you were willing to come down and live a perfect, sinless life and be treated like a criminal and murdered for me. And I know, had that not happened, had you not showed that great love, I would never have had an opportunity to spend eternity with God. So I just thank you for that, and I just pray, God, that if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, whatever's holding them back, whether it be religion or churchy things, just remove it from their mind. Remind them that you came and died for everyone and anyone who would believe they can believe that what you did was enough to guarantee their eternal life, your word promises they'll have it. If they make that decision, I pray they contact us. We'd love to walk with them in their journey. But for those of us who are believers, God, we have such an important job to do, and we are losing sight of it. 
God, give us the same love that took you to that cross. Motivate us by letting us remember that you loved us when no one else did, that you gave us opportunities no one else could. And let us reciprocate and show people that we come in contact with that same kind of love and mercy and grace. We just pray, God, as we leave here, you would keep us safe. Let us live what we profess. If you don't return to take us home before we meet again, we'd love to come together one more time and give you the praise, honor, and glory. You're so worthy of it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.